Hello and welcome to the Reading Energy podcast, where the Reading Energy team talks about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm the editor, Peter White, and we don't have with us this week um, Bogdan Avramuta, he's away on holiday, but we do have our solar analyst, Andrew Svantana. Hello there. And uh, our EV and oil analyst, Connor Watts. Hello. And product manager, Simon Thompson. Good morning. On today's podcast, we're going to take a little look into geothermal and ask if it's just about ready to be taken seriously as a form of energy. And we're going to think about whether Australia is uh, is the model for what happens when solar dominates a power landscape as it does there. Finally, we're going to wonder why on earth Goldman Sachs think lithium, thinks lithium is about to have a global glut. And we'll also see what our product manager, Simon, made of this week's issue. Um, our first visit, though, is to um, Geothermal. And it's a story that I'm afraid I wrote on a company called Ever. Now, the thing that, that struck me about Ever, well, the spelling is we've just been discussing, it's Ever as in Endeavor, E-A-V-O-R, it's one of the only companies, geothermal companies, we've talked to. It doesn't really talk about things happening in 2030. Um, it talks about being supplying 10 million homes with energy by 2030. It believes it's going to start doing more and more power deals in the 2024 um, timeframe. And, and we had a long discussion with them uh, in this issue about how it scales rapidly. We were talking to a guy called Daniel Mulk who's Managing Director for Good Germany, not the CEO, but uh, in charge of their latest project, which is, um, it's really interesting. When we first looked at Ever, we were looking at a two kilometre, almost like a radiator cut into the landscape, a two kilometre down, two kilometres across, a couple of uh, transverses, and then uh, two kilometres up. And essentially, it was generating a reasonable amount of energy from that process, especially because it didn't need to pump water in and out, and it didn't rely on water already being there. It, it created a sealed... Um, we, I mean, it likes, Mulk likes to call them a radiator under the ground. Um, that, was it, that was called um, the Everloop Light. However, the full version of Everloop turns out to be a much bigger beast going seven to eight kilometers into the ground and having radiators out thermals dug sideways that go up to six and a half kilometers along uh, and all this to produce um, the equivalent of uh, nine megawatts of final electricity or a lot more if you're dealing with heat um, but it's a total it, of 90 yeah 90 kilometers say- of drilling and is it always water that that is being pumped around? Yeah. So initially they put in uh, some some form of uh, so they put steel pipes down the uh, the down and the up loop, but they 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 seal it just by pumping some kind of solution into it, and then once it's sealed, it's just like water out of the tap or or out of a river. Um, it's just plain water, and the the idea one of the key ideas is. That, this idea of the thermosiphon, that the water, although it's absorbing heat through conduction through the walls, it uses almost convection uh, as the heat travels up 
and creates a very slow-moving cycle through the radiator. Uh, eventually, the hot water comes to the surface, and then you have a constant supply of hot water coming to the surface. And you can either turn that into electricity with a Rankin engine, or you can take heat off of it to fuel district heat systems or industrial heat. I mean, in this, in its second iteration, which is had tested by NREL, it has a difference between um, the surface and the, the lower water temperature of 460 degrees. I mean, this is, this is hot water. Previous, uh, it, was, it was only a, a matter of a few, of under 100 degrees. And it seemed to be uh, something you wouldn't mind having drilled in your backyard um, when it was two kilometres long. Suddenly now, but uh, I mean, they're now talking about drilling down much further. Um, and so, so they do fall into a similar category with every other geothermal, which is to go deeper. But they're not really relying on uh, any kind of aquifer, any kind of underground water being there already. You can put this anywhere. So suddenly a lot of islands have been very interested in it. Japan um, bought into the company uh, and put someone on the board through, um, what's the company name? Uh, Tsubu Electric. Isn't yeah, one of its That's pending it. utilities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, it is. Tsubu Electric, yeah it, yeah, it is. And they, um, and they have this license that they're, that the system they're building now in, in Germany, they have six licenses in Germany and one in Italy and one in the Netherlands and their negotiations ongoing all throughout uh, Eastern Europe. They, they have hundreds of um, uh, potential partners not, and once they've built a large scale one, they believe that they can bring the, uh, the levelized cost of energy below $70. Now, that's below nuclear. Uh, that's level with uh, offshore wind. And, and remember, this is constant heat, constant power. Uh, this is this is a baseload. This is uh, more valuable than intermittent power. So, uh, you know, I, I'm talking to these these people and thinking this is actually going to work. This is really going to take off. I, um, and the key to it has been energy security. Because they're talking about all the all the natural gas being burned in district heating systems across northern Europe, and saying, "Yeah, we can re replace those." And scaling, oh, this is simple. We don't have to do all these. We just have to convey the secrets of how this is done to existing drilling companies. So companies that are used to drilling for oil or drilling for gas just turn their attention and or fracking turn their attention to this. And they create um, permanent power supplies. It's, um, it's because they understand that licenses is the right way forward. That's the, the route that's going to happen. You're going to contract with if you're you're a district heat uh, system. Um, you know where you want the outlet to be. You know, but by the front of your district heating pipes, and you you can uh, give the license, and you can contract with the driller directly, and then you're only paying a tiny amount of. Uh, uh, we don't know how much, but uh, but the business model works. That that um, of license fee to um, uh, to EVA. So in the end, yeah, I mean, it is quite uh, a mathematically you know delicate system as far as I can work out. You, uh, if anybody ever did fluid uh, dynamics at university, the maths is quite uh, enormous. And if you're drilling twelve laterals from from two uh, from two 
boreholes. It's, they all interfere with one another, and the maths is outlandishly complicated. But it has been checked by multiple universities. It, it's all been patented. And I just can't believe they're not gonna, it's not going to fly. It, unlike a lot of wind and a lot of other big hydro projects or nuclear, nuclear, it's 10 years to build a nuclear plant. Whatever anyone tells you, history tells us, it takes 10 years to build a nuclear plant, even if they say oh, it'll take, take five, because of the security requirements behind it, the safety requirements behind it. Because you're not powering a load of uh, water under pressure into these holes, uh, you're not fracking, you're not creating the likelihood of there being a tremors, you, you don't have the same kind of safety concerns. In the end, you've got to, I believe it when I see it, but there is a definite possibility that we should be forecasting a geothermal uh, uh, energy line in our uh, annual primary electricity uh, forecast because in the 2030 time frame it's it's going to be more than a decimal point it's going to be into the single fi single figure percentages of global energy and rising so uh, you know uh, and that's uh, if it's I'm quite cynical so to convince me it was uh, it's quite a uh, quite a step an achievement so there's quite a few different um innovations to this aren't there there's the something we've seen before which is this this increase of drilling depths that are feasible but i, I think i haven't heard about putting sealant in before i don't think i've heard about that i think it's always been i, I think it's, it's self-sealing i think i think you put <laughs> in some kind of solution and uh, effectively that that just starts to seal the uh, natural holes and you remember what's going on down there it's it's rock and it's at quite a quite a high temperature, um, so it, it's. Um, um, I think there is a tendency for it to self seal anyway. But um, I mean, the only difference is that this is all closed loop. That every part of this is closed loop. There is no interaction with the underground water supply. There is no requirement for there to be an underground water supply, which in most uh, forms of, of deep uh, geothermal. There is, although although the, you know conditions can be met. I mean, we're not writing off other geothermal systems. Uh, just just marvelling at this one. Should we, should we go on to the the South Australia piece? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really interested in this Australia. What we've got with Australia is a country well ahead of the curve in having some some days for some hours all of its electricity, all of its grid grids or some of its territory grids full of solar energy and you've written a story about um, what's happening there in terms of pricing. Yeah I don't quite remember off the top of my head when South Australia first had 100% solar on its grid it's probably quite a few years ago now but you know I like to return to the, the this Australian state of South Australia uh, and see how it's doing because it is this um, extreme special case where you've got 1.8 million citizens and you've got I think it's definitely over two gigawatts of solar. It might even be something like 2.4 gigawatts right now, uh, near the end of 2022. So this is like a very extreme case of what do you do with um, the duck curve, with the excess of renewable power in the middle of the day. And you know, obviously one of the answers is battery storage. And wouldn't you know, one of the first big grid scale, highly profitable batteries in the world was the Tesla big battery. I think it's also called the Hornsdale Reserve, which is about 150 megawatts. I mean, it just made bank, absolute bank. Uh, you know, another question, another thing that might come up uh, besides batteries is curtailment, unfortunately, especially when you are in a, it, it's not just a huge overload of solar, it's also solar in South Australia, which is miles and miles and miles away. 
with grid connections that are long and thin and expensive to make thicker uh, to the other states of Australia. So if anything happens to them, like the big storms that we had uh, at the end of last week, uh, and one of them kicks out, well, then you've got even more curtailment than you might otherwise have. And there are, there are nice ways to do curtailment in theory. Um, as you get more EVs on the grid, as you get more demand responsibility and more uh, more virtual power plants, that kind of thing, uh, more domestic energy storage especially. Uh, but for now, you're seeing South Australia uh, use voltage control, which is a sort of crude, old-fashioned way to do things. You have the, um, I, I can't remember if it was the Australian energy market operator or the local SA power networks, uh, but one of them was telling customers, don't worry, it won't destroy any of your other appliances. It'll just make your solar switch off. <laughs> um, and the other one, the other one is um, Queensland State, which is not quite as solar saturated as South Australia, but it's getting there. And they up there, they're trying to do. Um, in fact, they have required all new rooftop solar to have these um, remote switch off devices. Uh, and of course, that this is just a crude sort of method you would prefer to have market um, market approaches to discourage people putting power into the grid when the grid has too much power already because it's the middle of the day in australia and everyone you know i think it's i think a third of all uh, houses have rooftop solar it certainly looks like that so so do you think to a certain extent that these rules are coming in through um, lobby pressure from um, other types of of uh, generators or is this just a practical measure there's just too much. Don't put any more on the grid. Is it because uh, Australia's um, grids uh, have have weak interconnectors because the size of the place? Hmm. As a result, you know it's too expensive to put thicker interconnectors in. Is it all of the above? You know, or is it just the massive amount of, uh, of of solar irradiation? Yeah, it's all of the above. Although you know the coal lobby is stronger in Australia, certainly than anywhere in Europe, and probably stronger than most of America. I mean, you just look at how much is left on the grid as a simple way of estimating that. But yeah, it, it, we're sort of looking at the, I, I hope the, the last uh, days of these crude switch off measures, oh, we're just going to switch it off as compared to the more flexible um, approach, which will involve negative prices. I haven't really, I haven't really thought about, to be honest, I, I haven't really thought about negative prices very much a concept that you come across too often but it, it's actually you, you can look at a graph of the pricing in um, South Australia and it's very often negative and I think that would be a more flexible way to adjust things and of course if you have a negative power price uh, that is a very strong incentive for um, battery installations of all kinds because then you'll they, they literally get paid to charge which uh, and then they get paid again when they discharge later on so uh, I think but does that does that result in um, in the customer in the street getting cheaper energy, even if you don't have solar? Well, that, I mean, when you ask about the ultimate result, then you have to kind of factor in everything, like the transmission costs. It's, it's quite complicated to compare and contrast everything. Yeah, but if you were an operator, if you were a, a utility and and you um, and you had money, you know, your cost of electricity went down. And your price of your electricity was actually remained fairly stable. You'd be a lot richer, and if you were a lot richer, you could invest a lot more in a lot more transmission capability. So it's it's it is interesting to see that what's what's going on there may soon happen in America, may soon happen in parts of southern Europe, uh, parts of Asia. Um, I mean, it does seem like you know this idea of negative pricing on the grid 
um, being paid to take the stuff off the grid and then being paid a second time to put it back on again later is a, an economic trigger for batteries on a massive scale. Because they don't have to, I mean, just because you're getting rooftop solar in doesn't mean to say owner of the battery has to be a house holder. It could be that you have a little community battery, regional batteries, and that you just suck out what energy there is at a negative price. So you're being paid to do this. So you're being paid all the time, every time your battery is on, whether it's um, sucking in or blowing out. It just... That looks like an economic trigger that is just gonna. Once that fires, like, can you see? Could this? Could, could this be happening? Could this ever happen in Europe? Well, in Europe, it's it's less. You, you know, the whole issue of negative pricing is because there's just this absolutely immense dark curve, this absolutely immense preponderance of solar power. In Europe, you have more wind, and you also have some nuclear and hydropower and, and so on. So it's not, I mean, you will still yeah, need but batteries, that, but you'll be using the batteries to, to smooth over a generation mix that includes intermittency from wind, which is, you know, it doesn't quite match up to um, the solar in the same way. It doesn't double down on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly will happen in Europe. It, it won't be quite as extreme. Uh, well, it depends. If we get investment in Italy, in Spain, Portugal, right across those sunnier states, if we import from the, the northern tip of Africa, if all that investment takes place, then, then there could be considerable, a similar problem, not quite the same, uh, but there could be a similar problem uh, as we, certainly this can happen in America and certainly Chile, which has got the best conditions for solar on the planet is, uh, well, I think it's going to end up as a rich country exporting solar energy in uh, one form or another and exporting uh, lithium, which will lead us on to our next subject, because uh, it's got the, the biggest re global reserves of lithium as well, in one form or another. We'll, we'll keep our eye on how Australia deals with this problem. Under its current government, it may well be well disposed towards solar, uh, and these may be pragmatic decisions. Um, if the other opposition get, ever get back in, it might be more punitive. So we'll, we'll see how that, that goes. Um Goldman Sachs thinks we're going to have a glut in lithium. Is that uh, did I misread that story, um, Connor? I'm, I'm just unfortunately that... no, you didn't. <laughs> they also predicted this. Um, I believe it was their last prediction was in May of this year, saying that by the end of Q2 and by the start of Q3 of this year, we'd see lithium returning to something like I think they said something like seventeen thousand USD, which is insane. Yeah, that's now, so far, it's 75, 80. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. So um, yeah. the, these guys, uh, I mean, I've, I've met this before. People want to be contrary to the market. They want to build a reputation for themselves. So they come up with an outlandish, uh, outlandish statement and they repeat it ad nauseum for three, four, five years until one day it's actually true. And they can say, see, I told you. Um, and it's all done for investment purposes. Um and it doesn't really reflect the reality. I mean, we know that the demand for electric vehicles is much larger than the ability to supply from the, from the current car companies. We know that they're building factories like there's no tomorrow in America and that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act has, has made, made everyone double down on the, on the supply chain because the supply chain can no longer go through Europe, 
China or basically anywhere else that doesn't have a free trade deal with America. So it's all Latin America, Canada or, or America. So that suddenly we're, we're building a, 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 a new supply chain. And what's going to happen to the old supply chain? It'll, it'll still be churning out batteries. So these guys have got together. They built a model that, based on probably erroneous data that suggests, oh, well, if you've got two supply chains all supplying the whole world, we'll have a glut in lithium. They just haven't picked up how rapidly the requirement for lithium is going up because... Um, if China can't sell any lithium into America, it's not going to have any problem shipping what it's already got and what it's planned for the next five years. I think we all know that, don't we? Mm-hmm. What I was going to bring up with, with regards to Goldman's claims is that their original claim was that a surge of investor capital had created an outsized response that was ahead of the demand trend, which they're viewing lithium as if it's a tech company that can just hire a load of programmers and increase output immediately. They're not yeah. thinking, oh, this money is going to put shovels in the ground and pay for it's machinery da- to do stuff. It's also dangerous, you know, because we, we see people like um, British Vault, you know, who, who currently, just because of supply chain issues, because of the recession uh, or because of inflation, are having trouble raising their next round of money. And they're having trouble. And if you've got words like this being spoken that suggests that, that, um, that there's going to be a glut, um, then why would an investor put money in now? Why wouldn't they wait? That there, there is a, you know, you can do damage in this market. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to say this openly. Luckily, nobody takes Goldman Sachs analysts <laughs> seriously because there are other people to listen to. But you have to be careful with with um, statements like that. Like if they're repeated too loudly from too famous a company, the you end up with. Um, with an effect on the market anyway, which is to nobody invests. Everyone pulls out their investment in lithium ion, which is would be uh, madness. Uh, and and the other way is true as well. The fact that it's seventy five thousand uh, price today isn't a good reason to invest in it. You've got to look long term, um, and you've got to look long term at a five to ten or fifteen year position, global position on lithium. There's plenty of reserves. It's it's how you economically get them out of the ground and you have to get them out of the ground in the right order, i.e. the most profitable first. And mining companies are not known for taking gambles on that process. And they, I'm sure, have this under control. Although, you know, I think the idea that Goldman Sachs would convince them to stop chasing lithium, um, they're not they're not stupid. They will not do that. I'm going to um, people's advocate all right. a, a little bit, actually, yeah. which is what happens if there's a, a global economic recession? I mean, I know you said that that doesn't affect uh, European EV demand, but what about Chinese EV demand? Is that maybe subject to economic trends? Uh, right now, what, what, go on, Connor. No, I was just going to say that China isn't really experiencing that same kind of economic hardship that we're seeing in the West. Well, like, yeah. currently the energy crisis that's powering inflation has been Europe. It, it's been incredibly Europe focused. So the US still has pretty good EV demand. China is able to export a lot of the problems that it may have as higher costs, which fuel inflation, which makes inflation worse outside of China, but not so much in China. They just make the money off of it and they kind of level themselves out, comparatively speaking. 
I, I should I, I should have said why I was asking about China, which is because I, I saw something on um, from the coming out of the China's National Energy Administration saying that in the first ten months of this year, electricity com- consumption in the country was only up three point eight percent, which seems very bad, very weak compared to usual growth. And in October, maybe this is just due to the weather, but in October specifically, it was only up 2.2% year on year. And I wondered if maybe that was a sign of a general global recession. I, I, I imagine you're right. I imagine there is an element of that going on. I imagine there is um, uh, some kind of global recession. And as, you, as you're right to point out, that China is less susceptible because it's still growing. Um, but the electricity supply is not a direct indicator of um, GDP growth um, because energy density as you know the, the amount of energy you need for each percentage of GDP growth is going down and, and it's consciously and deliberately being lowered um, as as uh, China goes through its industrialization process so if you've got three point something percent um, growth in electricity it doesn't mean you can't have five percent growth in uh, GDP it's so they're not um, hinged together tightly they are related but not not directly and the ratio of them is changing all the time or it's slowly changing over time and 5.5 percent gdp growth would be okay i don't well i don't know i mean it's used to um north of nine but i mean uh you know the um of course that's um they've reined in their expectations in the last three years <laughs> and no one knows what's normal anymore so i'm not you know i'm not and i'm not an economist so i'm not going to uh, speculate on that Ca- connor might like to i can add to it yeah i can add to that a bit so china's well first of all i'd just like to say that gdp is an incredibly crude measure it's quite easily manipulatable especially when the state has a considerable level of control over output. So China heavily, heavily subsidized the proliferation of construction and the property market. That hasn't gone incredibly well and has slowed down as a result of COVID and as a result of some individuals. So I expect Chinese GDP to be considerably lower than it has been over the last few years, but they have lockdowns to account for that and they have less construction and they have demographic problems. They're going to slow down a bit, but not enough to prevent the continued growth of the middle class. It'll be in 20 or 30 years when that middle class is nearing retirement and there's not enough kids to replace them that the problems may start to arise. And in being a dominant economy at that time, it that may be a disastrous problem for that generation to cope with. Like, thank God that's not exactly. what's happening now. <laughs> <laughs> with Japan or Korea or yeah exactly so conclusion- yeah, right so that's happening in, in, in smaller economies but not not, not killing us so in conclusion uh, and, the, in, uh, the, um, and in Europe the, the economics aren't looking that bad and even if they are the EV demand the lithium demand is pretty solid because I, I get this impression from China certainly on their grid Absolutely. that they like building renewables partly because they're growing so it doesn't mean they don't have to actually get rid of any of their existing fossil fuel infrastructure because if you're also getting rid of that, then it sort of makes it more expensive. You know, replacing something is m- more expensive in the sense that you're ditching the old stuff. And I wondered if, if they stop yeah, growing, maybe game. they'll be less interested in. No, but yeah. if you're ditching it in the right time, it's not it's not a problem. It's already all in the price. Um, if you're ditching it in its full in its full livelihood has happened, and and that's and we are definitely switching through that phase now. By 2030, China will be closing. 
um, coal plants faster than it's opening them. It certainly it doesn't look like it's opening very many at all now, even though uh, it's opening a lot less than it had planned two, three years ago. Um, but all, all, by 2030, I doubt if any are be, being open. Uh, but certainly closures will start to happen at pace. Uh, because of when they were invested in. And they that will be seen as a replacement, a natural cycle of replacement rather than, um, you know, I'm sure their economic advisors are, are taking that all into account when they say they can, they're going to reach um, their maximum um, emissions by 2030 and then, and then the peak will fall off and come to zero by 2060. I think those numbers are have been crunched uh, on supercomputers of their own making, and um, and I, I believe those numbers. And, and could you could I just ask uh, one last question on the lithium thing? Sorry, um, could you remind me what the lead time is on new projects, whether it's processing or mining, to ease this bottleneck? Is it how many years is it? Uh, so everyone's fond of saying seven years, but the trouble is, what they're not taking into account is the fact that. Uh, what were these? What were the mining companies doing five years ago? Were they looking for more lithium? Were they assaying it? Were they preparing routes? Were they working out the profitability of different sources? And they had it on the on the on ramp, ready to rock and roll uh, at one or two years' notice. So and, until you have a handle on that, uh, this off quoted number of seven years is really misleading. Um, and, yeah, and it's the but you're pretty confident it won't be one year and all be rosy and oversupplied next year, like Goldman is almost implying. <laughs> pretty I, 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 am, are you saying am I am I more confident in Goldman's IQ points than ours? No, I'm I'm absolutely uh, more confident in ours than I am in in Goldman's because I've watched Goldman Sachs. Uh, from the, I think they invented the term "big swinging dick" um, because they like <laughs> to make stuff happen, and they 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 don't really care about the consequences of it. And they've had a a, um, a reputation for um, being a bit cavalier in financial markets for the past twenty five years. So, uh, yeah, this this is just one analyst talking out a term with the, his pet theory, and no one no one telling him to get back in his box. Um, Look, the, the it's the it's the uptake rate of lithium. We have got nothing like the lithium supplies we need uh, for the car revolution. The car revolution is happening faster than anyone realizes. As Connor points out, the middle class is of China are getting larger, and therefore um, they want to they want to buy the best cars. They are EVs in China. Best cars, EVs. What everyone's left with, and the calamity that's going on here, and the thing you've got to point at is. Every car company in the world that was originally an internal combustion engine uh, car maker is still making too many internal combustion cars. And they're sitting in the supply chain um, pretending to be waiting for, um, for, for semiconductors before they can be shipped. But what they're actually saying is we can't sell these damn things. We're making too many of them. We really should be making more EVs. I wish someone would put some more lithium on them. And and that's the truth. That's what's really going on. I mean, General Motors the other week. Oh, we've sold out of the new EV Hummer for the next two years. Why? They've never they've never been able to say that about the the internal combustion engine version. They they just aren't making enough. They can't make enough. They haven't got the factories. 
That's two, two years to make the factories for the cars, two more years to make the factories for the batteries. Someone's, please, give me more lithium. <laughs> I think that, and that runs into 2027, 28, 29, 30. And at that point, we've only hit half of the global market. So that we've got to double the supply of lithium. Um, so I, you know, re really, uh, if, if anyone wants to, it, this will be true about 2042. <laughs> and, and I'm sure lithium price will go up and down in there, as it always does. Supply and demand can't be aren't matched naturally. You have to you, uh, in in capitalism, there are um, victims. You know, someone makes the supply larger just at the wrong moment and loses out. And someone someone hangs on too long with buying and can't buy any, and and the price shoots up. That's boom slump is built into capitalism, and it, it's true on on uh, supply chain pricing, especially in anything as new as as lithium batteries are, are to the car market. But that doesn't mean to say there's suddenly going to be a glut tomorrow. And if there was a glut tomorrow, it would be very temporary, followed by uh, you know running out all over again because the demand graphs are huge. Okay, let's we squash that one. Simon, what have you got for us? So I, I, I mean, I just wax lyrical about about the um, the vast um, requirements for lithium going forwards, and and then um, I said, Simon. So let's change subject. Simon, what have you made of this week's issue? Well, it's a, a great addition for energy technology, um, including the um, uh, a. Uh, uh, a, a great article about perovskite tandem factory in France, which I found interesting. But the, the thing that um, it, it worth noting was a, a great use of space. And it is that the Senate of France has passed legislation requiring outdoor car parks of 80 or more spaces to have solar panels installed. Why hasn't anyone thought of this before? It's, great. it's a terrific idea. Yeah, I mean, I guess they just hadn't quite created it, uh, made it profitable enough that people would freely choose to build entire shading systems just to put panels on. But making it a requirement, I, I suppose, is good enough. Uh, I think France's power prices are now higher than Germany's, and they're still in a fairly tough place. Um, but the interesting thing here is just how big this is. It, with one senator, Senator Corbizet, saying that um, it'll be between 6.7 gigawatts and 11 gigawatts of um, of capacity that can be f crammed into the country just on um, car parks of over 80 spots. And, and it just goes to show just how much room there, there really is once you start digging in and making requirements um, for rooftop. I was going to say Charles de Gaulle will be a power station now. And Charles de Gaulle will be turning in his grave. <laughs> well, the airport, I mean, yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I think you, when you look at what governments control, if they really back solar, uh, I mean, we see it in England. Um, the, the mayor of Manchester said, oh, every building in Manchester is going to be mandated to have um, solar on its roof. Every uh, And, of course, you can lead that by every public building. And once you, you know, car parks, once you've got a license, you know, car park doesn't have to be public. It can be, it, it can be owned uh, by a private company, but it can still have um, a, a bylaw that says, but it needs to have solar on its roof. And uh, you can do this at local government level, and you can do this at 
at, at federal government level. And I think, you know, eventually all such laws will exist because it's just pointless not doing it. And, it, and you're right, it'll have a massive effect. That's <laughs> why we're so bullish on solar. I spoke to a CNI British um, com installer company actually uh, yesterday, just a s small one, and he was just totally optimistic about Europe, uh, well, the UK, which is where he operates, but basically applies to Europe, uh, about the future of the sector. And th you, you try and think about what can go wrong, and there's really nothing that go can go wrong. It'll just grow and grow. Well, I think, you know, we're going to see in your DER forecast um, that's coming out um, hopefully this year, maybe early next, that um, that uh, solar plus battery is an irresistible force that uh, will wipe out utilities if they don't somehow work out how to control and own that that um, investment in it. Um, but we'll we'll come to that later. All right. So all of this and more on the pages of um, rethinkresearch.biz. Uh, click on the energy button uh, and you'll be in weekly analysis. It's a free service. You can read all the stories there. Um, all of, uh, If you click forecast and data, that's what we really do for a living. We forecast how all these technologies work together to create a global electricity um, grid and um, we forecast it out to 2050 um, in um, a very complicated uh, layer of, of forecasts called uh, annual primary electricity coming out again in January this year. But each of the, the subject areas are separate, whether it's solar, whether it's floating solar, whether it's wind, whether it's offshore wind, and, and maybe it will also be things like geothermal soon. Um, so um, if you have any questions, email simon at rethinkresearch.biz and I'm sure he can help you out. And if you have a, an energy problem, let us know. We'll try and help you. Uh, in the meantime, everybody who's listening to this should um, join the uh, webinar that we should, we're advertising on our website um, for energy question time. It's going to happen on the 24th of November. All right. And with that, we're going to end this session. <laughs>